welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. So glad you're here this morning. Um, we, we do not take for granted your presence. We appreciate the fact that you give up a precious part of your weekend to join with us as a faith community in worship. And I um, just want to commend you for that and say thank you. Um, for the next couple of weeks leading into Easter, I, I want to talk to you uh, about the cross. And I've entitled this morning's message, The Cross Prefigured. Now, as I get underway, the message might seem to you to be anything uh, but about the cross. Um, and I'm sure that after a portion of the message, you're going to be thinking, I thought he said he was going to be talking about the cross. For goodness sake, what on earth is this all about? I'm just warning you, okay? There'll, there'll be that moment when you kind of wonder. But we, we will get to the subject, all right? <clears throat> I'm going to take my life in my own hands a bit this morning and um, kind of leap into an area that I don't usually go into. Um, many of you, especially those of you who know me, will know that I read a good deal. Um, I read lots and lots of books. Um, I consider it as part of, part of what I'm supposed to do. Um, and the reality is there are good books and I enjoy them immensely and there are others, um, maybe not so much. Um, I've, I might talk about the books that I'm reading with Karen or perhaps um, Chris or the staff. Uh, I might mention uh, books in small groups to people, but I very, very rarely make lengthy comments on books in, in public. I think I've done it a couple of times. I think I remember talking about Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, and I'm struggling to think of any others, actually. Uh, but I'm going to deviate from that practice this morning and at least for a moment talk about a book that's recently hit the shelves in Christian bookshops. It's by an author that many of you will know and um, I'm sure enjoy. Some of you um, will listen to his podcasts. He's a very gifted individual um, and very, very well respected in evangelical circles. His name is Andy Stanley and the book that I'm talking to you about this morning is a, a book that he's recently written called Irresistible. For those of you who don't know Andy, he is the pastor of North Point Community Church in Georgia, USA. It's a mega church, I think. Something like 32,000 people gather on multi-sites every Sunday uh, to, to um, be part of um, that ministry. And as I said, Andy is an incredibly gifted leader, highly regarded, and I highly regard him. Okay, I want to say that up front, I, hard, I highly regard him. However, I have to be honest and say his latest book, Irresistible, is um, a troubling read for me. What I do, what I do say, though, is I really do appreciate Andy Stanley's heart and his desire to reach out and connect the gospel message to a new generation. Um, Andy is... Uh, an expert at trying to connect with what is a post-Christian secular culture in which church attendance is declining rapidly and in which um, an increasingly hostile posture and attitude is being taken toward Christianity and Christian values. And he longs to touch and reach out to that generation and for that I, um, I, I laud him. In Irresistible, uh, Stanley posits that a huge problem in the church and a significant barrier to reaching out to this post-Christian uh, generation is in fact the Old Testament. And he suggests that when postmoderns struggle to believe, 
Um, the, the Old Testament is nearly always the culprit. And, and I think most of us probably understand that. Again, if you've read Dawkins and Harris and those, and those new atheists, they nearly always point to the Old Testament and to its practices. And according to Stanley, our incessant habit of reaching back into the Old Covenant concepts, teachings and sayings and narratives is problematic. And the thesis of Irresistible is quite bold and breathtaking in its essence. He virtually pins all the problems of the church from the ancient crusades through to modern day legalism to our continued use of the Old Testament. And his recommendation is, and I quote, unhitch our teachings of what it means to follow Jesus from all things Old Covenant. So in other words, cut it off, abandon it, give it, a, give it a, get rid of it. So irresistible is a radical and wide ranging thesis and in, in my humble opinion, would need to be backed up by an equally wide-ranging and forceful argument for it to be in any way plausible. I'm not sure that Stanley actually succeeds in that endeavor. I do understand something of what he says. Uh, you know, nearly all scholars recognize that some of the Old Testament is now obsolete. Chris referred to it actually over the communion this morning. The book of Hebrews, for example, explores the idea in depth that the mosaic economy of worship with its temple and its sacrifices and its priests have now been fulfilled in and superseded by Christ. They were the shadows, he's the fulfillment. But Stanley goes way beyond that idea. He puts all of the Old Testament laws together and treats them as one single undifferentiated lump and suggests that we eject the lot. And the problem for me with that is that isn't the way the New Testament treats those laws, and it isn't how the church historically has treated them either. Theologians have usually made a distinction between what they call ceremonial law and moral law. For example, the animal sacrifices and the laws associated with the priesthood and temple were regarded as ceremonial law and are seen as having been fulfilled in Christ, and therefore they are obsolete in terms of practice. But it's been widely recognized, however, that the laws, the moral laws of the Old Covenant, for example, the Ten Commandments, have an abiding relevance for us. Historically, the church has considered those laws, the moral laws, as an expression of God's moral character, and therefore, are not obsolete, they're carried through into the new covenant. Stanley rejects that, and he states, and again I command, uh, I quote rather, the 10 commandments have no authority over you, none. To be clear, thou shalt not obey the 10 commandments. That's very bold. Now in his defense, I do wanna say he's not inciting what we call antinomianism. He's not inciting lawlessness. He's just simply saying that our lives aren't to be governed by the Old Testament concepts or ideas or commands. Now, that idea seems to me to be flatly contradicted by the New Testament. I'll just give you one example. For example, in Ephesians chapter six, verses one through three, it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Now, note, Paul does not ground that command in the New Testament teachings of Jesus, but he reaches directly back, citing the 10 commandments, one of the 10 commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Now, in Irresistible, 
Stanley points out and stirs up as much radical discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament as is possible. In his mind, it seems that they are fundamentally opposed to one another. The Old Testament seems to be characterized as harsh and cold and legalistic, and overall, we Christians should be happy to be rid of it. I think Stanley doesn't do justice to how the New Testament uh, saw Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament was their Bible. Um, he, insists, he simply insists that they were wrong to do so. Again, incredibly bold. He would say our attempts to find Christ in the Old Testament are simply instances of Jewish scriptures being hijacked by Christians who are ignoring the original concepts. Uh, I'm, in so, I'm sorry, but that's jaw-dropping. There was a figure in, the new t in, in church history who held a very similar view to Stanley. His name was Marcion. Now, they were different in that Marcion went much, much further than Stanley goes, and he said that the Old Testament was a product of a different and false god. Um, he was rightly branded as a heretic, and I'm not going anywhere near saying that Stanley should be tarred with the same brush. I do want to suggest that as an incredibly influential voice in the Christian community worldwide, his ideas at least are troubling in terms of the directions that they are pointing. And Marcion and Stanley do share the conviction that the Old Testament is at odds with the New Testament gospel and therefore should be discarded. Now look, I'm incredibly aware of the challenges that the Old Testament scripture and narrative create in postmodern minds. You know, when they talk about the, the genocide of Joshua's invasion of the land and slavery and, and misogyny and all those things, I, I understand how postmodern people trip over those questions. They aren't, they aren't insurmountable questions, by the way. Thoughtful scholars have provided really good answers for a lot of the questions that postmoderns are asking. And I think just to simply unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament actually creates more problems than it solves. When you come into the New Testament, the gospel writer's portrait of Jesus, rather than being radically discontinuous of the Old Testament or from the Old Testament, actually they rest their hermeneutical uh, appropriation on those Old Testament scriptures, on Israel's scriptures. The gospels are deeply embedded in the symbolic world that is shaped by the Old Testament. And, and, and the claim that is made by the gospel writers again and again that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection took place according to the scriptures stands at the heart of the New Testament message. And all four gospels declare that the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms mysteriously prefigure Jesus. So to simply cut that off is to stop the play in, in Act 3 and say, I want you to forget Act 1, 2, and 3. Act 4 is a completely new story. Forget what's gone before. Let's start afresh, because that is problematic. Well, I'm sorry, but you know, suddenly your story is, is removed from its narrative. And all that happens in Act 4 loses its meaning because it's built up by Acts 1, 2, and 3. And it isn't what Jesus said. In John chapter five, verse 45 through 47, Jesus is talking to um, the Pharisees and he says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is none that accuses you. There is one that accuses you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. 
He wrote of me. If you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? Jesus doesn't cut off the old story. He says the old story was leading to me. All of the old story was pointing to me. Moses wrote of me. And then they uh, walked to Emmaus after Jesus' resurrection. Um, and he walks with this couple and they, they tell him about their broken heart and how their dreams have been shattered in the, res- in the death of Jesus. And he says to them, how foolish are you and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer all these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus did not cut off the Old Testament, the old story. He says all of the scriptures. This isn't just about a few isolated texts that have been hijacked from the Jewish scriptures by overzealous Christian exegetes, as Stanley suggests. It seems to me that Jesus was suggesting that the whole story of Israel builds to its narrative climax in him, that the whole story was leading to him. He's the lynch point of the story, and from him the whole story flows. I don't think Jesus can be properly understood apart from the Jewish scriptures. You know, we say Jesus Christ. The word Christ is the Hebrew word or or the transliteration of the Hebrew word Messiah. Unless you understand something about the Jewish Messiah, then that word Christ is a meaningless term. That whole story leads to that point. You can't simply leap into the play in Act 4 and expect to understand it. The Jewish scriptures can't be understood without Jesus. There's, there's, it's, I think, a tragic misunderstanding to regard the Old Testament as some kind of legalistic foil from which Jesus delivered us and that we'd be better without. Right at the beginning of the gospel story, in John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip, having met Jesus, finds Nathanael and says, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The Torah, the, the law, the prophets wrote of Jesus. Let's look, by the way, at the testimony of church history on this subject. St. Augustine famously observed that the New Testament is in the old contained, and the Old Testament is in the new explained. The new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. There's not a separation of these two things. These, these, These two covenants interlink. They are one narrative flow. Martin Luther could have been writing a book review on Andy Stanley's book. He said, there are some who have, re- who have little regard for the Old Testament. They think of it as a book who was given to the Jewish people only and is now out of date, containing only stories of past times. But Jesus, or Christ says in John 5, search the scriptures for it is they that bear witness of me. He then says, here in the Old Testament you will find the swaddling clothes and the manger in which Christ lies. Simple and lowly are these swaddling clothes, but dear is the treasure who lies in them. Martin Luther. Modern day scholar um, who I thoroughly enjoy his works, um, Richard B. Hayes said, the, gospel, the gospels teach us how to read the Old Testament and at the same time, the Old Testament teaches how to, us how to read the gospels. And he goes on to say, the more deeply we probe the Jewish and Old Testament roots of the gospel narratives, the more clearly we see that each of the four evangelists in their diverse portrayals identify Jesus as the embodiment of the God of Israel. This is one story and I'm sorry, you can't just cut it off in the middle for the sake of, you know, some difficult passages that, that, that are hard to explain. It, it, I'm sorry, it doesn't work like that. 
to respond to the difficult to respond to the difficulties that the Old Testament might create in the postmodern mind by rejecting it, by unhitching ourselves from it and rejecting its message, in my view, breaks the narrative. It, it makes the story nonsense and leaves us with a message that's just been wrenched out of its narrative context. You know, the tragic thing is there are many Protestant churches that I think are naively Marcionite in their theology and practice. And I think Stanley's book actually will only strengthen that. Now, it's at this point in the sermon you're thinking, the cross? Um, Where where, where does that figure? Well, I, I, I did give you a spoiler alert, didn't I? I wanted to lead into that because I I want to talk about the fact that the cross is prefigured in the Old Testament. We aren't reaching back just picking out a few isolated ideas. All of the prophets, Jesus said, all of the Torah, Moses wrote about me. This This is about me and you need to see me in it. I want to show you a painting by Holman Hunt. Uh, Holman Hunt was, if you're interested in that, the leader of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. And he, he, he painted a number of really well-known paintings. If you're not familiar with them, I'm sure you'd be familiar with one that he painted called The Light of the World, which actually pictures Jesus um, knocking on an overgrown and long unopened door holding a, holding a, a lamp. You know, many of you will have seen that. That's, that's Holman Hunt. This is possibly one of his lesser-known ones. It's called The Shadow of Death. And the painting depicts Jesus inside the carpenter shop in Nazareth, and stripped to the waist, he stands by a wooden trestle on which he has been working, and he's just put down his saw, and he stretches, raising both arms above his head, and as he does so, the evening sunlight streaming through the open door casts the dark shadow of uh, 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 the form of a cross behind him. And his tool rack looks like the horizontal bar on which his hands have been crucified. The tools themselves remind us of the fateful hammer and the nails. A woman, most likely Mary, kneels among the wood chippings uh, and her hands rest on a chest in which the rich gifts of the Magi are kept. The gold, the incense, and perhaps especially in this poignant moment, the myrrh, which of course was a burial ointment. And although this painting by Hunt is um, obviously historically fictitious, I'd like to suggest to you that it's theologically true. Because Jesus, from his youth, indeed from his birth, the, the, the cross cast its long shadow over and ahead of him. And from the myrrh presented to him by the Magi at his, at his birth, through to the 12-year-old declaring to his bewildered parents who had just spent three days looking for him that I must be about my father's business, to the very beginning of his ministry when Mary seeks to get him to intervene in the wedding celebrations because they've run out of wine, and he responds, my hour has not yet come. Jesus seemed to understand right from the beginning that his life was governed by some kind of divine timeline and it was moving irrevocably toward a divinely appointed hour. And that hour was the cross. And the cross casts its long shadow, not just over his earthly life, but right out over the Old Testament. This is part of that continuing narrative. And I'd like to do what Stanley says we have no right to do. Look at the Old Testament scripture and see in it clear and deliberate echoes of something in the New Testament, and it's the shadow of the cross. When I was just looking at this 
painting. One portion of scripture just came to my mind and, and I'll just throw it in there. It's, it's Psalm 88. And um, I, if, you, if you know the Psalm, Psalm 88 is a very difficult Psalm. It's a, it, it, it starts off dark and ends up pitch black. And there's not, a, there's not a ray of hope in that whole Psalm. Most of the Psalms might start with darkness, but they end up or is somewhere in the middle as a, as a crack through which you can see light, not Psalm 88. And many scholars have suggested that Psalm 88 really is about um, Good Friday. And it goes a bit like this in, in verses 11 through 15. Lord, I have called daily upon you. And, and I want you to see Jesus' life in this passage. I've called daily upon you. I have stretched out my hands to you. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Selah. Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? He's talking about something happening after death. But to you I've cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? Do you hear the echoes of my God, my God? Why hast thou forsaken me? And then he says, I've been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. Here's one who has lived in the shadow of the cross. And in Psalm 88, we see this incredible echo, if you like, of, of what Jesus went through, the rejection he faced, not just from people, but the silence from heaven. Why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? And this, this series of questions that he asks about the grave and death. Will you work wonders in the dead? Will the dead arise and praise you? Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave and your faithfulness in the place of destruction? And the answer to those questions is a resounding, yes, it will. Those things will happen. And it says in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter three that after death he went down and he preached the gospel to, to the spirits that were in prison. You know, now it's a kind of a mysterious word, but we, we clearly have the idea that his, his word was proclaimed in that after death um, sphere and that there were wonders in the grave as the gospel went forth. And that sense here of living under the shadow of his cross, I've been ready to die from my youth up. You know, when you talk about prefiguring the cross in the Old Testament, there are so many passages that you can turn to, and I didn't even know which one to go to. I mean, obviously the servant songs of Isaiah were culminating in Isaiah 53 are probably the most famous. But one of the other vivid passages that prefigure the cross is Psalm 22. It's, it's notably one of the most messianic of all the Psalms. It's quoted seven times in the New Testament and every time it's a reference to Jesus. And the opening words of that Psalm are immediately recognizable as the words that Jesus spoke from the cross. It starts off, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? You know, I, I suspect those words, why, where are you? have to be as old as the human race and as contemporary as the pain of somebody's recent broken heart, a grieving spouse or a parent or a child. Why did this happen? Where were you in the midst of it all? It's a, it's a very, very natural question. And Jesus as a human being is asking that question. Actually, in, in the original, it's, uh, it's uttered in Aramaic, which is the language of Jesus' boyhood. 
And psychologists will often tell you that as death approaches, um, and, or, or people find themselves in traumatic circumstances, they will often resort to the language or the memories of, of their childhood. It's an incredibly touching comment on Jesus' humanity. This is a cry of separation, of desolation. It isn't a cry, by the way, of faithless despair or rebellious questioning of God and his purposes. It's a very touching, very personal language. My God, he says, my Abba. In the midst of the incredible disorientation of the cross, as he experiences something that he has not known for all eternity, the severing of his relationship with his father, he clings to what he knows of God's character and God's redemptive faithfulness. Because in verse four and five, he says, our fathers trusted in thee, and they trusted and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. This is the psalmist in the midst of his disorientation, Nevertheless, reaching for God's faithfulness. And I think in Jesus' cry of desolation, he wasn't being faithless or rebellious. He was disorientated beyond belief, but believing nonetheless in God's faithful purposes. You know, on the cross, Jesus experienced being completely forsaken by his Father. These weren't delirium tremors. He was truly abandoned. And the question has to be asked, well, why would that be? There was no cause in his person that merited that desertion. He was the only person in history that could ask that why question with complete integrity. But we're told in the psalm why, why that desertion took place, why that rejection occurred. In verse three it says, you are holy. And in verse six it says, but I am a worm. And those two words are profoundly connected. The holiness of God and the psalmist saying, I am a worm. That, that word, by the way, worm, is arresting. In the Hebrew, it's tuleya. And elsewhere, it's translated in the scripture not as the worm, but as the color. It, it's scarlet or it's crimson. And it's exactly the same word that's used in Isaiah chapter one, verse 18, where the prophet says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as Tuleya, though they be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they be red like tuleya, crimson, they shall be as wool. You are holy, but I'm scarlet. I'm crimson, is what the psalmist is saying. And that conveys to us the reason for this desolation that he's experiencing, for the rejection that's taking place. Because on the cross, Christ who knew no sin was made to be sin for you and me. At, the mo at that moment, he is made crimson, the embodiment of sin, the incarnation of human failure. And on that moment, at that moment, the Holy One turns away his eyes. Because in that moment, he has to be dealt with not as son, but as sin. And Habakkuk chapter one, verse 13 says, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil. And the father turned away his eyes from the son who took upon himself the crimson stain of humanity. He was forsaken in that moment so that you and I would not be. God turned away his face from Jesus so that he could turn it toward me and you. And he bore our iniquity in that moment so we wouldn't have to carry it ourselves. He endured the wrath and rejection of a holy God so that you and I could be welcomed with acceptance. In Psalm 22 verses one to six then, really we have the rejection of God on 
on the cross. Verses six through 13 speak about the rejection that Jesus experienced from people as he hung on the cross. And it says, a reproach of men, despised of people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Can you hear the echoes of what transpired around the cross? As people saying, if you really are the Messiah, come on down, show us. You, you read Matthew 27, verse 39 following. Mark chapter 15, verse 29 following. Luke chapter 23, verse 35 following. And you will find that psalm just acted out. In verses 12 through 18 of Psalm 22, the agonies of crucifixion are described in explicit detail. Thousand years before crucifixion was ever a means of execution. Crucifixion was particularly a Roman invention, or at least they made it popular. In Jewish history, there was never execution. When a person was um, punished, capital punishment, it was by stoning. But here in this passage, the crucifixion is described in explicit detail. And the psalmist says, I'm poured out with water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot shoot and my, towel, my, my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you have brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and they cast lots for my vesture. This is, this is the cross, prefigured a thousand years before it even was, was imagined. You know, on the cross in John chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus cries out and says, I thirst. One of the things that transpired at the cross was the intense and rapid loss of blood caused a dehydration that resulted in phenomenal thirst. And so excruciating would it be that the tongue would literally cleave to the mouth. I guess you've woken up, all of us have had that experience of waking up and for some reason our mouth has dried up and our tongue has stuck to the roof of our mouth. It doesn't take too much to prise it apart, but in an instance like this, it just literally cleaved to the mouth. And John must have intended us to see the irony of this. Here's Jesus on the cross saying, I thirst. Wasn't this the one that said to the Samaritan woman, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst? Wasn't this the one that stood in the Feast of Tabernacles and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink? Wasn't this the one who declares from the throne, to the thirsty I will give water without cost? And here he is hanging naked saying, I thirst. Psalm 22 prefigured it. And the reality is, in the same way that he bore our sin, he took upon himself our thirsts, our, our desperate need for the water of life, and he took upon himself that so that we could have our thirst quenched. You know, the first half of Psalm 22 depicts the suffering of Jesus, and then suddenly it changes. There is this dramatic change from verse 22 onwards, where amazingly and without explanation, the psalmist begins to praise God for the salvation that's been accomplished. There's so much in there that would merit attention and further study. Let me finish, though, by just taking one word, or rather one phrase. On the cross, Jesus finally cried out in John chapter 19, verse 30, it is finished. And that 
phrase echoes the final words of the psalm that so clearly prefigures his death where it says, he has done it. It is finished. He has done it. And this prefiguring of the cross tells us that his death accomplished something. He's done it. Jesus says, it's finished. In between that, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus stands with Moses and Elijah, and they talk about the exodus, literally in the Greek, the exodus that he will accomplish in Jerusalem. The exodus which will set a people free based on a blood sacrifice. You know, most of us talk about death, if we talk about it at all, not as an accomplishment, but as a, an acquiescence to the inevitable, something that we just can't put off. Jesus spoke about his death as accomplishing something. Psalm 22 prefigured it. Jesus said it is finished. What, what was it that he'd done? He has done it. What did he do? Well, it was the plan of God through the cross to deal with the guilt of human sin in order that God's own justice be vindicated. And Isaiah says, and the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It was the plan of God to defeat all the powers of evil. And Colossians says, Christ disarmed all of the powers and authorities, triumphing over them in the cross. It was the plan of God to destroy death. And he destroyed death and brought to life, uh, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, 2 Timothy says. It was the plan of God to remove the barrier and the alienation between the Jews and the Gentiles and create one new man from the two. And Ephesians says his purpose was to create in himself one humanity out of the two, thus making peace in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. And it was the plan of God ultimately to reconcile the whole of his creation. Through him, then, Colossians says, to reconcile to himself all things, whether all things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his, through his blood shed on the cross. So the plan of God to deal with guilt, the plan of God to defeat evil, the plan of God to destroy death, the plan of God to bring people together, and the plan of God to reconcile humanity, he has done it. It is finished. And that's what we celebrate at Easter. All that was accomplished at the cross and it was affirmed, vindicated and guaranteed by the resurrection and it was all prefigured in the Old Testament. And as much as I respect Andy Stanley and please don't go away thinking Don doesn't like Andy Stanley because I do. I'm sorry, but I unapologetically reach back into the Old Testament because that is our story. Yes, there are hard things back there that sometimes would be easier to say, ah, oh, that's Jewish, it's nothing to do with us. But that's our story. And it's prefigured right from the beginning. Right from the beginning, the intended purpose of God after the fall was to reconcile people and the creation to himself through the cross of his son, and it's prefigured all through the Old Testament. And the New Testament is merely the fulfillment. The, the old contains the new, the new explains the old. The old conceals the new, the new reveals the old, unapologetically. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.